0: Elections make change, for better or worse. Just take the election of President Trump. For this reason, some people think that joining a political party and getting elected into Parliament is a good way to be a changemaker. But is it? Most politicians like to tell us how powerful they are and what a difference they make. But it often feels like they leave the real stuff out. They so rarely tell us about all the things that make it tough the insider backroom conversations and power plays that shape what actually happens. This changemaker chat is with a real-life politician who is prepared to come and spill the beans on how things actually work. John Robertson has been a senior member of the Australian Labor Party for several decades. His roles include being the opposition leader in the New South Wales Parliament for four years and being the head of the New South Wales Trade Union Movement. He's been a mover and shaker on dozens of issues, on everything from workplace rights to refugee rights. Some love him, some hate him, but almost everyone in the Labor Party has had to deal with him. And he's our guest today. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world.
1: John Robertson, one, two, three,
0: four. Might as well just start by saying welcome, John, or should I say Robbo?
1: You can say whatever you like, Amanda.
0: <laughs> so we've known each other for quite a while, um, and uh, but our audience doesn't know you well. So we're going to get into a bit of your backstory. And, you know, full disclosure for our podcast listeners, I worked with John, Robo, as we all called him, and still call and him, still do, still do, in the union movement at Unions New South Wales a while ago. But so to make sure that our audience sort of gets up to speed, I we're going to talk about your whole story in a moment. But I actually wanted to, to start with a sort of broad brushstroke uh, question, which is, I wonder if you can describe what kind of change maker you are.
1: Um, I'm someone who's had the privilege of occupying positions of leadership either in the union movement or in the Labor Party, and I've always taken the view that you've can you got two options. You can sit there and keep a seat warm or you can use that opportunity to make real change. And my approach has always been it's an opportunity to make change and I think throughout my time that's probably cost me along the way. It's cost me friendships. It's probably, some would argue, cost me positions of leadership as well at some point, but... I think if you're in those positions, there is a chance to make real change. Uh, That requires a lot of hard work and understanding of how change occurs, what you've got to do to build a movement uh, for change.
0: Cool. So we're going to get into this mysterious concept of change, right? Like change to you is different to change to me, perhaps. So let's get into it. But let's get into your story first. So I'm wanting to find out why you're a change maker, in particular where it all came from. Where where did this passion and interest in social change come from for you?
1: So I grew up in a house where politics was always there. My dad was a tragic member of the Labour Party. He's still a member of the Labour Party, probably not quite as tragic as he was, but in 1969, we lived in a cul-de-sac and my dad and a guy that lived three doors down from us in the federal election of 69 built out of wood, sign wrote the whole thing, this uh, booth, for want of a better description, that they would set up outside our local school. So it was built in our garage. It was then dismantled, put in a car, driven three minutes up the road, reconstructed outside the school. Um, And that was the first thing I remember about politics. So that's 69. In 72... I went and hung out with my father and handed out how to votes for Gough Whitlam in the election of 72. And so we always had politics in the house. Um, My dad's mate that he built that booth with subsequently went to Holland working for Phillips. And so my dad used to record with the old cassette recorder. Some people won't even know what that is. (laughs) We would sit and watch the leaders' speeches. My dad would tape them on a cassette deck we all had to be deadly quiet in front of the TV because <laughs> no it laughing. just had a microphone. No. And then he would send it to his mate in Holland.
0: Wow. So, you were tragic.
1: So we would <laughs> and so we grew up talking about politics. Yeah. And and you know, I always said to people, you know, my father's greatest success in the Labour Party was running fourth out of four in a federal pre-selection for <laughs> Parramatta. Uh, but so yeah, we just always had politics in the house. And so I saw up close, my father was a union organizer. Um and lost a ballot and the phone stopped ringing when I was about six or seven months into the first year of my electrical apprenticeship. So I saw firsthand what happens when you lose. The phone stops ringing. Suddenly the people who were calling you and seeking your advice didn't want to know you. So I think by 16, I'd seen what happens in politics when you um, fall out or you make a stand. So to that extent, when I end up in the union movement, I'm pretty much aware of what can happen. But we've always, I guess I grew up in this house that was always watching politics and talking about change and, you know, my dad was, you know, my, I was a bit like my father, you know, the right claimed ownership of me but I never signed up and joined and my dad was a bit the same. So he's working at the AWU but he's marching. And what's in the AWU? Australian Workers Union. I'm sorry, I shouldn't use acronyms. And so my dad's marching in the anti-Vietnam marches oh, wow. when the right of the <laughs> Labor Party isn't. Support, yeah. Um, so I think... Some of that obviously rubbed off as well on me in terms of
0: I said you
1: can be your own person.
0: Yeah, right. You make your own decisions. Yeah. So you decided to become an electrician.
1: Um, I became an electrician largely because at the age of 16, I just didn't want to be at school you anymore. You decided
0: not to be a school student. I did. And my
1: <laughs> father said to me, well, the only trade worth doing is electrical. So I went, okay, I don't know, but sounds fine. Uh, and it was hard to get an apprenticeship at that stage. And I remember applying for more and more jobs and eventually getting a start with a mob that was called Firefighting Enterprises. Uh, we're based in Ermington and I still remember my very first day on a construction site just down the other end of George Street at the Menzies Hotel.
0: And so, when, so you started as a humble electrician, but you rose into the ranks of unionism. What, why did you choose to get involved in the union, do you think?
1: Well, I, I think I'd seen union with my dad. Um, I'd seen what he'd done. I mean, he'd been out with the shearers, you know, the whole bit. And I'd seen union. I'd seen the value of that. I'd seen how hard my dad worked, so I knew that it was hard work. But I also knew that you could make a real difference. So what happened was, I was working away at a on a building site in Western Sydney, and the guy that was the ET, the electrical trade union organizer goes on holidays for six weeks and they come to me and say, would you be prepared to come in for six weeks and just fill in while he's on holidays? So I'm like, yep, i have pretty much done being an electrician, cold <laughs> mornings, crawling around under houses and in roof spaces. And so I go to my boss and I go, can I just have six weeks leave without pay? And he goes, no. Nope. And I said, well, I'm resigning. I was just, that was it. Anyhow, while I'm there organising, the guy who I'm filling in for resigns and I'm Johnny on the spot. And they said, did I want to stay? And I've you know, as they say, the rest is
0: history. Yeah, wow. So, you're, I mean, there's a lot to your history because I've known you in your next gig, which was working at Unions New South Wales. Why did you make the decision to go from the Electrical Trade Union, which is a particular trade union representing a particular kind of worker, to representing all workers in New South Wales?
1: So, I was at the Electrical Trade Union for just under five years and it became it became clear to me just the way things were playing out, I wasn't going to be leader or I was going to be up against my one of my really good mates for the Secretary's job and I thought, nah. So Michael Eason, who was Secretary of the Labor Council at the time, uh, approached me and asked if I was interested in coming on board and I thought, why not? I think I've been very fortunate. My time at the Electrical Trade Union came about by circumstance. This was an opportunity who knows what would happen. And so I took, I jumped and went down there and worked there for a long, long time, uh, starting off just as an industrial officer.
0: And so you didn't stay as an industrial officer though. You're, you climbed the ranks in that space. Why did you put the effort in to climb the ranks in that space? Why was it of interest to you?
1: Well, it was a place where People used to call it the graveyard for industrial disputes. But I saw there was an opportunity for more. As the peak body for the union movement in New South Wales, there was a real opportunity to change that. And Michael Eason had started that while he was secretary, breaking down the factionalism. And then each subsequent secretary, I think, built on that. And I had the benefit of leading the organisation at a time where you could bed down that factionalism and put it all to bed and talk about movement rather than arguing between left and right factions. So
0: some of our people are not going to understand that the Labor Party has two, two, mainly two factions in it. Tell us what they are and why they're a problem in your eyes.
1: Well, I don't know what they are anymore. I know what they <laughs> used to be when we had the Cold War. Um, I think these days it's all personality-based and I jokingly used to say to people, I'm more left." than half the people that would see themselves as left-wingers who, and I mean people who see themselves as left-wingers see themselves as progressive, but I can tell you I've met plenty of people in the left who are more conservative than half the people in the so-called right. I don't know the factions has the same impact that it used to have when there was a real ideological war. When the Eastern Bloc collapsed, I think people really lost that sense of why those factions exist and now... I feel like it's who you come through young labour with or who your mates are tends to be where you are. But as you know, over my time, I think I've probably upset as many people in the left as I have in the right with oh, yeah. the, the stance that I've taken and largely because, you know, I think the factions is a way for a small group of people to organise a chunk of, of a, whether it's the union movement or the party uh, to advance their own personal cause or promote themselves within whatever organisation it is. And I don't think it's unique, by the way, to the union movement or the Labor Party. I mean, the Conservatives are going through that same problem now, you know, with mm. the moderates and the and the hardliners or whatever they want to call themselves. Um, and I think those groupings can be destructive um, unless you overcome it. And so to my point where I started, um, the Labor Council, as it was, then started to break down that, process under Michael Eason's leadership and continued to progress to the point where I think the union movement really did become a movement much more focused on outcomes for members and change than it was about stupid internal fights about who's going to hold a position on what committee and the rubbish that you used to see.
0: Mm. When you're in the union movement, you did quite a lot of high profile campaigns. What Maybe so people can feel what this defactionalised movement actually looks like. Do you want to just tell us about one of them and how it broke down some of the factionalism?
1: So it, it started with, I think, just positions on committees and, and those sorts of things internally where the the controlling faction, which was the right, uh, controlled all the positions on committees. So things like finance committees and a whole range of other policy committees and that started to break down and then we did things like we would have strategic planning days where we would engage everyone and everyone was made to feel free to have input into the future direction of the Labor Council that subsequently became Unions New South Wales. So we gave everyone a sense of ownership and once you broke that down and everyone felt free to participate and put forward any idea they liked, you got that real sense of ownership and once you had ownership you could go much further. It was about building confidence the people could trust you, that you weren't playing stupid games, you're you're focused on the end game, not some internal minutiae that might be going on. And that gave the capacity to really build a movement. And of course, as you build a movement, that builds power. And once you've built power, you can implement real change.
0: So one of the things that was um, pretty important in your time at Unions New South Wales the, was the Your Rights at Work campaign. Do you want to explain, I mean, for me, a lot of that defactionalism then was the sort of Um, means by which your rights at work could be so successful. How did you see it?
1: So your rights at work was one, I think, Labor for Refugees was another example of defactionalisation. I think, you know, the third one was the whole issue around uh, power privatisation. I mean, there's three areas where I think historically you wouldn't have seen that happen had we not defactionalised on any of those levels. Mm. People might have bought in a little bit, but we ran genuine campaign. So by defactionalising, people knew you were genuine about an issue and they were confident that you would push as hard and as far as you had to on a particular issue. So rights at work, just as an example, came about in a room with me and two other people uh, about a concept of after the 2005 election when Howard won again, uh, we sat down and went, right, what have we got to do in three years to take this government down and what are the steps that we need to take and what does the movement look like and what do we need to do? So we mapped out a three-year plan and then went back to the movement, the unions in New South Wales, and it rolled out then on a national basis and talked about here's where we need to be in two thousand and seven if we're to defeat this government because this is a government that's continuing to strip away the rights of working people in a big way. And we set about engaging all the unions in that process, and because we had defactionalised, they had a real sense of confidence that it could happen. The thing I was always conscious of was as a leader, you're only as strong as the people around you and you need people prepared to follow you out of the trench and up and over into the firing line. And so it was about going out, building that sense of we have a plan, we can execute that plan with their support. It requires buy-in. It's going to require financial commitment as well. And once we got to that point, we were able to roll out a campaign that I think is still, you know, and I'm a bit biased, but probably one of the best campaigns the movement's run in modern times.
0: Yeah, I think you're probably right. And also it, was, it wasn't was like it was easy because while you were running that campaign towards the end, there was a need to still influence and move the Labor Party while you still were trying to change the environment and, you know, as you say, get rid of the Howard government, yeah?
1: Well, we changed the leader as well.
0: Lots of things uh, were changed.
1: <laughs> um, the Labor Party changed their leader from Kim Beasley to Kevin Rudd and, you know, that's another story in itself. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was very much about moving um, Labor Party policy and I remember conferences where you'd be constantly under pressure to water down your stance at a conference. Uh, I remember state conference when Beasley was still leader and he made a speech which was supposedly a fig, a, an olive branch to me about industrial relations and, and changes that he was going to make and it, it still didn't go far enough and it was about saying it doesn't deliver.
0: Indeed, like just to be specific, he didn't fully oppose Australian workplace agreements, the individual contracts that were actually at the heart of the problem with the work choices legislation. That's
1: exactly right. And so to that extent, it was like, well, great, you know, there's there's a bit, but there's not enough. And I used to sit around and regularly say, I'm sick of crumbs off the table. I want to sit, I want a place at the table. I want a meal served in front of me. And I want to eat that meal as an equal with everyone else at the table. I think for far too long there had been a view that, you know, we'll just, yeah, there's a few crumbs that get swept off the table and we'll be thankful for those and, you know, pick them up and run with it. My view was uh, we're well past that. We are a movement in our own right. For mine, it was about the union movement. It was about those members and it was about making sure we delivered outcomes.
0: Yeah. So, but you didn't stay there in the union movement. You you made a decision um, about a, a year after the Your Rights at Work campaign to... Uh, formal. I mean, you had been a member of the Labor Party for a long time, but to formally join the Parliamentary Party in New South Wales to go into Parliament, why did you do that?
1: Well, I, I resisted for about 10 weeks. I was, I wouldn't say harassed, but I was constantly asked to come in and join the Parliamentary Labor Party and I resisted and resisted and resisted. And then in the end, I think I, well, I know why I arrived there. It was largely because it's not every day the Premier of the state asks you to come and join the team. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go and give this a crack. Now, I have to say that before I went, um, I had always been someone who said you can do more outside politics than you can inside. Having been in and now out the other side, I'm more convinced than ever that you can achieve more outside politics than inside. And... I can share the reasons why that is now, if you like, or later.
0: Let's get into it. I've got a whole journey for us to go through around this um, because that's what I think is important for our listeners to understand. Not many people honestly talk about what politics is really like to people who are doing social change on the outside, and I think everyone is looking forward to hearing a bit more about that. Okay. But firstly, I want to ask you, so you went into politics thinking that you were going to be able to... Make change, presumably. Yep. So what did you think it was going to be like? So
1: I was – it's it's so different. I mean, I'd interacted with politicians of both persuasions at a federal and state level in my role before I got there. What I discovered when
0: before, I no, – before but what did you think it was going to be like? What, what utopian picture did you have in your so mind? So I
1: expected I was going to get my hands on the levers and I was going to be in a position, whatever portfolio it was, to make real change what I discovered was vastly different. Um, I found a place where there are significant constraints about how you exercise power. And I say that whether it's minister in government or whether it's leader of a party, both of which I've had, there are constraints around how far you can go, which I found at the time and even looking back a little frustrating. But I had a process with every portfolio I had when I was a minister of meeting with the Director Generals as they were referred to then. They're now called Secretaries of the Departments and telling them that I never want to be told no if I want to implement a particular policy. I'm very happy for them to give me advice on all the things that I want to do and the pitfalls along the way and the things I should be aware of. But I never want them to tell me I can't do something and if they come back and tell me no, then we'll only have one more conversation as Minister and Director General and that'll be our last. Yeah just to make it very clear.
0: Well, you're elected, right? Yes. Yeah.
1: But I think one of the dangers with government is ministers arrive there and unless you've got a very clear view about what you want to do in a portfolio, it's very easy for the bureaucracy to come along and go, I've got this, we've got this idea, minister, we think you should implement it, here's all the reasons why. And quite often you'll see ministers who become captives of the bureaucracy. Now, As someone who sat on government boards and went to strategic planning days where you'd spend time talking about how you manage stakeholders and one of your stakeholders is your minister, I was only too well aware of what might happen. So that's why I'd have that conversation up front with the Director Generals. I parted company with one. Wow. uh, And it was around security of payments for subcontractors in the building industry, something that I was very passionate about outside Finally get myself into this portfolio where I go, right, I know exactly what to do. I know who the players are. I know them very well. I can get them in. We can agree on a process. I can then get the bureaucracy in and tell them here's what we want to do and everybody agrees. Um, sadly, they came back and said, you can't do this, Minister. And, and that's how the meeting started. Uh, I let them finish talking. I then said to the then um, person, can you hang around at the end? And then said, "Remember our first conversation? Yes, Minister. Well, this is our last.
0: Wow, cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, cool. But I still didn't get the reform.
0: <laughs> really? Yeah. So there were other so 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 th- this this difficult sometimes relationship with parts of the public service is something that can make life difficult in politics. What else?"
1: Oh, the internal machinations of whichever party you're in. Oh, um, you're
0: joking. You, mean, you mean that the Labor Party is well, complex uh, and it, difficult?
1: It's, it's for both. Yeah. Um, it is one of those things that the internal politics is something very difficult to deal with. And I'll give you a classic example, um, the rule change on leadership. Kevin Rudd was a late arrival to this rule change. I actually presented to a state conference 2011 or 2012 that very rule change. Mm-hmm couldn't get it up, and it got flicked off to a committee. And then Rudd gets himself re-elected as leader and immediately says, here's the rule. And then subsequently at the next conference, the rules got changed so that that applied to all leaders.
0: And just to clarify so people understand, it means that you can't have a revolving door on leadership. It means that you have to have... There are only certain circumstances under which you can uh, reappoint a leader to the Labor Party. Yeah,
1: that's right. So you've got to get 60% of the caucus to actually sign. Yep to say they want a spill uh, for the leader. So you can't just have, you know, a group running around going, right, you've got to go and that's the end of it. But again, what should have been a very straightforward exercise because of the internal machinations got flicked off at a conference to the following year, sent away to a committee to look at and all the rest of it, uh, and then Rudd gets re-elected and says, this is what I want and it immediately happens because he's Prime Minister and then the next conference it got changed. So there's a whole – there's a – and it's very difficult to describe. So you've got bureaucracy, but then you've got these other structures that it's really hard to put your finger on that also inhibit your ability to implement change. I mean, I did another thing with um, putting place new standards for the front bench of the then Shadow Cabinet, and it was about giving people a sense of confidence. So things like no second jobs for politicians and declaring your taxable income as part of your pecuniary interest declarations, your shareholdings of your partners and all those sorts of things. If you had relatives who might have had contracts with government, they all had to be, if you, if it was reasonable that you could be aware of them, uh, you had to put those in your pecuniary interest declarations. Well, the fight I had on that was just extraordinary. Now, this is at the point where Labor, Labor has suffered in 2011 the worst defeat in its history.
0: and And some ministers are now in jail yep. because of corruption.
1: Exactly <laughs> right. And I'm fighting with people to implement a set of reasonable changes to give the public a sense of confidence that yeah. there's there's a level of transparency. So things like diaries, I said, not didn't matter in opposition because you've got no power and you don't meet with anyone to make decisions, <laughs> but things like in government we would implement uh, diary, release of diaries, which the government subsequently followed on with mm. and those sorts of things. So there was a series of things in this new standard that I eventually pushed through, but it was a struggle.
0: Do you think it was just that people didn't want to disclose their interests or do you think that there was something more complex going on than that?
1: I think it's more complex than that. I think that it's that whole thing of, um, you know, people figure if they can get away with not disclosing as much as possible and not necessarily a corrupt way, but just they won't if they don't want to. I mean, when I first landed in Parliament, John Hadzitsigoss, who was the Attorney General in New South Wales at the time, gave me some very good advice, which was, if you want the same rights as the average citizen, get out of Parliament. I think people mm. rightly have an expectation that their parliamentary leaders, their elected representatives will set a higher standard than mm. might just be expected across the community. I found that pretty reasonable. I think it's one of those things that if you're the people that make the laws, set the laws, legislate the laws, you ought to, people ought to rightly have an expectation of a higher standard of behaviour when it comes to ethics, morals and mm. the way you just behave generally.
0: Yeah. I mean of what are the other constraints? I mean I can think of a few constraints that might exist on on the role of a minister but I'm interested in in you telling me some So
1: I think cabinet, caucus, yeah. bureaucracy.
0: Talk to us about cabinet. Cuz that's a little secret space that no one gets to hear much about. How does that work?
1: So cabinet, I mean again, it's 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 all a numbers game unless the premier or the leader if you're in op- if you're in opposition has got a particular mindset on something, by and large, if you can't get something through Cabinet, you can't do it. So you've got to get a a proposal to Cabinet. You've then got to convince your colleagues that it's a good idea. You've got things like budget committees. You've got expenditure review committees. So if there's a cost associated with whatever it is you're taking to Cabinet, uh, you've got to get through those hoops. And... That can be very difficult at times as well because even though it's your portfolio, your colleagues might have strong views to the contrary on what you want to do and some might well articulate those. So that can be difficult. Sometimes you can go to Cabinet and while you don't lose, you'll get told, well, you need to go away and do some more work on that. So the item will be deferred. Yeah, And so the formal Cabinet decision will be, the item was deferred for more work or, mm-hmm. you know, for further consideration, or it might get sent off to a cabinet subcommittee or something like that. So, those things can be quite limiting.
0: How do the factions work inside of cabinet? They don't. Gone, I have Is it to a say, I have
1: to say, I didn't find my experience the factions were a problem. In caucus, that's a different yeah, of kettle course. of fish. So, you go through cabinet and then you've still got to get something through caucus. Now, by and large, if you got through cabinet, you're pretty much be safe that you'd get it through caucus. But sometimes if your portfolio might have a caucus subcommittee, so you've got to go to the caucus subcommittee and you've got to talk those people through what you want to do, what the outcomes will be and those sorts of things. And again, um, people get elected and they've got particular views and they sometimes feel quite within their rights to say whatever they like about those things and stop you from doing things. But
0: can I ask though, as leader, so when Kevin Rudd, becomes, you know, Prime Minister again, he's able to just come up with a policy and slam it through. You were leader, right, admittedly as opposition, which is different. I I appreciate that. Does that give you more power in the Cabinet environment? So it does.
1: Um, But, again, you only get to make those calls so often. It's it's not an unlimited supply of captains' calls is, right. the, the, I think, the most recent edit, vernacular. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that was the most recent term that was used, I think. So you do get to make those calls. You know, it's a bit back me or sack me type of thing, but you have to be conscious that you can't do that every time because eventually your colleagues, if you just use that as your argument rather than taking people mm-hmm. along with you, eventually your colleagues are going to go, you know what, uh, we're not backing you anymore, we're sacking you. Yeah. That said my experience in building a movement also gave me the capacity within caucus to build a coalition of people to support a particular proposition around the reasons why. So some of the things that I learned outside allowed me not to build a movement but at least build a a level of consensus Mm. that people would go, look, I'm not really sure about it but you know what, I'm going to back it.
0: It makes me think a good organiser in that space, you know, would, yeah. would be able to 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 be able to sort that stuff through.
1: But it's probably the hardest group you could ever try and organise because, and I don't want this to sound derogatory because it's, it's not meant to be, but you've got a lot of people who, particularly when you're leader or even when you're a minister, who are sitting there who might not be in either of those positions who think I can do as good or better job than you. So if that's their mindset and they don't want to support something you're talking about that makes it very hard. Whereas I think when you're building a movement, you've got a group of people that have coalesced around an issue and you've got them engaged enough that they're in this issue that you can bring them along mm. because you say, if we do these things, we can win on this issue. Mm. It's a The dynamic is a bit different inside the caucus and the cabinet.
0: Like they've got more armory on, like they've got yep. more baggage in the conversation. It's not just appealing to someone's heart and head. It's sort of a in the middle of all, you know, you've got to get under the armour.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and if you're a local MP, you've got a particular view about what you need to be doing mm. to ensure you're re-elected at the next election. Yeah. So I understand that as well. But it's about understanding that and understanding what the motivators are or how you tap into that emotion to build that coalition or that group that's prepared to back you.
0: So you said earlier, you know, you know, we pose this question, do you make more change inside of parliament or outside of parliament? Talk us through your reflections on that.
1: So my view is, despite what politicians would have us believe that they lead, they don't. Um, And again, it's not a derogatory thing. It's the nature of the beast. I think if you look historically, politics has followed movements. Whitlam, you know, pulled out of Vietnam, but Whitlam pulled out of Vietnam after years and years and years of the moratorium marches. If you look at any not any change, but a lot of the significant change that occurs historically, it comes on the back of a movement within the wider community around an issue. Uh, And I don't care what it is, but the politicians will follow that. It's about shifting public opinion. And when the politicians are convinced that public opinion has shifted sufficiently, that's when they'll move. Classic example right now is Nauru and Manus Island where they're trying to get all the get people off or bring them here for medical treatment and those sorts of things. That's only occurred because the community, the the sense in the community is, well, hang on a minute, it's probably gone too far. So the politicians go, oh, okay, well, we can fly people off for medical treatment and those sorts of things without fear of a backlash. But if if that sense across the wider community was, no, let's punish them, who cares if they're dying, all those sorts of things, I think our the government i don't know about the labor side but the government i think would have just left them there to rot
0: yeah it's horrible
1: yeah you know, uh, so yeah look i don't want to labor the point but my uh, the thing about it is is on these big social issues change only occurs when there's a sense in the wider community that it will be acceptable and then the politicians follow
0: but it's more than that right like let's you know we've got a sophisticated audience they they would know that on issues like climate change, right, the wider community pretty much is on board with let's please not burn to a crisp in 10 years' time. But the politicians are quite a long way behind bridging that gap. You know, like one thing for refugees where the community has taken a fairly abysmal position at times, on climate change they're progressive, the politicians are not. You know, there's a gap that needs to be filled too, right? They need to understand how politics works too to make the change. That's true
1: but the thing that fell away in the climate change debate was the business community. So this is part of, I think, when you're looking to build a movement, it's great. Let's get, you know, mum, dad, kids, aunties, uncles and everyone involved. On some of these big issues, the business community has failed abysmally. Now, I can recollect... The insurance industry being out fifteen years ago on climate change, they were out leading in the sense they were out there saying, "If we don't do something about this, our business model yeah. is in crisis." Now they've just gone quiet. There's just they're just nowhere, and yet we've just seen, I think, in the last eighteen months, massive storms that have cost them millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. But I still hear them say nothing on climate change. So when you're building this movement on this, part of this is yes, you've got to build a movement, but you've got to map who are the real people or organizations that can influence? Who's got a vested interest? Now, for me, and I've had the opportunity to sit with some of these insurance companies and really stick it to them when I was opposition leader and go, Well, what happened to you guys? You were out there at the front and then you just disappeared. And they would look, they'd look at their shoes. When they'd be sitting like we're sitting, and they would look at their shoes. And they lost their nerve, sadly, when it was no longer considered to be a bipartisan issue. Now, for mine, I think that's a really sad reflection on those businesses, on those boards, their shareholders, because as managers of businesses, as directors on these things, if you know there's a threat to your business, surely you've got a responsibility to your shareholders to actually be out there advocating change that ensures that business continue to operate and continue to survive. But
0: let's just let's dig in on this issue just okay. a little. So there's a campaign around the Adani coal mine, yep. very specifically. And actually, the, the social movements have been very sophisticated and they approached all the major banks to deny funding. And about 30 banks, including the big four in Australia, have denied funding to any fossil fuel project, including the Adani mine. And even only a few weeks ago, a bunch of insurance companies came out and said that they wouldn't insure the project. Interesting, right? They've built a whole bunch of corporate support. But even with that corporate support, they can't get sufficient political support, sort of obviously in some respects from the Liberal Party who seem to have far too many climate change deniers in their ranks, but more interestingly from the Labor Party, why do you think that is?
1: So I think it comes down, well, two things. Um, I think the first thing is there's an affiliation issue. You've got the CFMMMEU or (laughs) So many M's. So many
0: M's. Which is the mining union. Which is the mining
1: union. Yep, that's right. Um, And I think it's how you manage that process. So there's that. I think there's this issue about jobs and how you engage people in what that means. Where the debate needs to go in my mind is about what the future looks like and and how do you actually address that problem. And the analogy i What do you mean by that? Well, address the problem around jobs. Right. Okay. Because in some of these areas, particularly in… Queensland. …southwestern Queensland, mining is a big employer. But I look… And I've been around, showing my age, I've been around long enough to remember when they shut asbestos mines. Mm. Now, asbestos mines provided jobs um, and they paid well and all the rest of it, but we all recognised that asbestos was going to kill you, it was killing the people that worked there and there's a problem. We talked about the closure of the forestry industries. I mean, Bob Carr, when he was Premier, closed a lot of forests and locked them up and there were job losses for people in the timber industry but we talked about industry transition packages in both Mm. those areas. We need to move this debate to the next level about, I mean, we've now got black lung is back in Queensland. So the extraordinary thing for me is that you've got people talking about jobs in mining where everyone assumed black lung. So black lung, I guess, for people who don't know, is a disease where you inhale coal, it kills you, it it solidifies in your lungs and you basically die of asphyxiation. It's horrid. Um, It's a terrible thing and now it's back well, back or never really gone, who knows. But my point is that these are not good jobs. Sure, they might pay well and all the rest of it and they'll pay your bills, but they might kill you when you're 50 or 60 uh, and I think there's real issues. The debate needs to move to the next level. So part of the whole thing around Adani, I think, has to be about pushing government to the next level, which is saying – We've closed industries before. We've made decisions mm. on environmental issues. We've made decisions around mining asbestos and we've put in place transition packages. They haven't been great. I mean, to be perfectly blunt, I don't think we've they've been done that well. But I think you can learn from those things and actually think about what does that transition look like? Because otherwise, it's we might as well go back. And if our argument is coal mines deliver jobs, then let's open up an asbestos mine because that'll deliver jobs yeah. too. And yeah, there's a whole bunch of other things that we don't do anymore like chop trees down in forests because we know the damage, the ecological damage it's done. Let's go and chop trees down because that'll create jobs too. Um, it's the dumbing down of this debate. So uh, to your point, I think we we need to build that movement and we need to do those things, but there's some of the debate that's just not going on mm. um, in this space. And what we've got to be doing is pointing back to what we did, maybe not perfectly, but we did when we closed industries and recognised that coal's dying. Now, I mean, my personal view is I don't think Adani's going to get up anyway. I mean, I just think, you know, as much as they keep talking about it, unless government throws money at this thing, it ain't going to get up. Yeah, but- Is my
0: sense. But it's, surely, this is what drives me insane, surely it's an opportunity for Bill Shorten to lead. Like, this is an opportunity where he can be Bob Hawke from 1983 and he can stop the Franklin Dam. You know, he can, he's often criticized for not being quite as strong a leader as he, people would like him to be. He can be that person. I just don't understand why he doesn't seize that moment.
1: So, declaration of my conflict of interest, Bill, is a good mate of mine. Um, and I think, again, he's in one of those really difficult positions about, I've talked about your capacity to make decisions and the pressures that are around yeah. you, some of those pressures will, I and I haven't spoken about this, so this is just my hypothesis, my sense is that there are pressures around him that are making it very difficult even if he wanted to sure. to actually make that call.
0: Sure. So what would you do if you were in the social movement trying to unlock some of those pressures to try and make the situation different?
1: So I I, I would be starting to talk about those examples yeah. of asbestos mines, of forestry, about transition packages, about what you do because...
0: Uh, it's not just an environmental issue. It's not just a climate no, issue. It's, it's a, it is, it's, it is it's, an economic issue. Yeah. And, and
1: at the end of the day, it's a very personal issue that if you're in a place like Townsville or somewhere else like that, Mackay, yeah. I mean, a mate of mine drives coal trains for Pacific National up in Queensland. So, you know, there are there's a whole series of consequences for that. But we have to start talking about that and how we address those issues because if you're a coal miner or I'm a coal miner and that's paying my mortgage and that's putting my kids through school and I'm living a pretty good life and I'm setting my kids up so they don't have to dig coal up and all those sorts of things, in my mind I can kind of justify that because I'm setting my kids up so they don't have to do that and hopefully, you know, something will happen and that'll change. You know, they'll have their fingers crossed. You've got to give those people a sense of, okay, here's what we're going to do. Yeah. Here's how we are going to look after you. Yeah. And the really significant thing, and I think where we failed, you know, in some of these industry transition packages was we'd look at 90% rather than 100% of the people that are affected. So we just, the, the, the bureaucracy and the politicians go, well, 90% of people are doing okay, but there's 10% get left behind. For me, you've got to look after 100%. Yeah. And sometimes that's not going to be ideal but people have got to have a level of confidence. And I think even in some of those places, if you could paint a picture about what that looks like and what it will look like and the assistance you'll provide people, I kind of think they're not all going to sign up. No. But you'll get a significant chunk of people who'll sign up. I mean, I imagine there are people who are digging coal up in those mines that are operating now going, I know this isn't going to last forever. Like deep down they'll know it.
0: Especially the sort of on the – the coalface, let me say, miners, as opposed to the sort of senior executives who are also benefiting from the mining industry.
1: So part of this, I think, is moving that debate to that next level about yeah. thinking about as a as, as you build that movement. Um, sure, you want to stop that, but my view has always been: even your opponents, you want to if you don't engage them, you want to neutralise them, and you can and 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 that's not in a negative sense, but it is in a sense of saying, "Hey, we understand what this you is going to do to you." Yeah like engage with them. We understand what this is going to do to you and as part of this, we're not simply saying shut Adani and bugger the consequences. We're actually saying as part of this, you've got to be looked after or your community's Mm. got to be looked after or we've got to do, you know, we have seen how it's done and it's been done okay. We think it can be done better and maybe that's how you engage them. I think part of this when you're building the movement is actually about being prepared to listen respectfully. And this is the the other part. It's about respect for alternate positions. And I don't mean alternate facts and and the crazy stuff, but I do mean if someone expresses a genuine, look, I don't know about climate change, I work in a mine, but what I do know is if you stop coal mining, here's what it does to me, at least going, yep, I understand that. And part of what we want to do is look at how do we alleviate and address some of those issues. I think the real risk is with people who are opposed to your views is, and I used to say this at Labor for Refugees, don't give someone a label because even if they're not that, if you say they're that, they will approach you every time with a view that you've already prejudged them, that they can't be shifted, that you can't convert them. It's really about engaging them and trying to find that point of commonality, which is what you were doing at Sydney Alliance, It's mm. dis- disparate groups, but finding those points of commonality and going, right. Let's build around that.
0: So just to reflect on on your your change-making thus far, and I know it continues now, you're working at a large not-for-profit, um, still making change now outside the system again. But if you were starting over, if you were, you know, you, you're talking to yourself when you were that young uh, electrical trade union organiser or maybe when you first started at Unions New South Wales, what's the most important lesson that you've learned about um, politics that you would... Um, Share with them, whisper in their ear.
1: So I think I would say always look to build your capacity f- to mobilise on the ground. Look for points of commonality. Look for where you want to take people. Give them a sense of what can realistically be achieved if you want to see change. And don't expect someone else to do it. If you're there and and you've got a capacity to lead then you've got to lead. I mean, I remember rights at work. I used to sort of joke, but it was kind of true that we had a map and it was a bit of a mud map, but there were times where you'd sort of go, hmm, where do we go from here? And the thing I was always conscious of was you, that people use the battle analogies and I use these. It was a bit like being the general out on the battlefield. Even if I wasn't sure you had to look like you knew where you were going, so everyone else behind sort of went, I'm not sure how this is going to end, but he seems to know where he's going, so I'm just going to follow. But you've, to get people to follow, you've got to build confidence. And to build confidence, you've got to be able to engage people. You've got to find points of commonality. You've got to have a plan that's realistically realistic, that's achievable. And then you just got to go out and you've just got to keep chipping away and chipping away and chipping away. And the experience of rights at work for me, I think, was extraordinary in terms of how you build a movement. And some of the things that we did, one of the stories I often share was Tamworth was a classic example. I remember going to Tamworth in 2005 after the federal election, standing on the corner um, in Peel Street and on the corner outside one of the banks and trying to talk to people as they walked past you and it was like you're a leper and no one really wanted to talk to you and those sorts of things. And then standing on that same corner in 2007 in the lead up to the election where people were lined up to tell us their stories uh, all came about because of a commitment to engaging, to listening, to returning, and being prepared to just keep going back and following up and following up. And for me, that that of everything that was that stark change from o five to o seven where you know it was national party heartland, no one wanted to talk to you, unions, you know what are they? Um, to yeah, people queuing up and sharing their stories and and being prepared to share how the workplace changes were impacting on them personally, the effect it was having on them at work, at home, the impact on their family, which, of course, then gave us the stories to tell about the real-life effects of work choices regardless of where you are. Here's the impact. So my advice is persist. Have a very clear plan. Don't label anyone because they disagree with you. Don't waste your time on people that are, you know, got their own alternate facts and those sorts of things. But at least before you get to that point of not engaging people, at least try and find those points of commonality because what you'll find is most people there is some point, you, know, you might find 10% there's not, but most people you will find a point at which you can engage with them on their level. And I don't mean intellectually, I just mean around their issues and find those points and build.
0: Sounds helpful. I've got one more question um which is do you have any regrets
1: no none i don't i've i've actually i've had time to think about that over a period of time and i've i think i am the person i am today because of everything i've had the opportunity to do i'm grateful um i feel very privileged for everything that that i've been able to do in my life uh, but i have no regrets and i think that's a nice place to be that I don't have any regrets. People sometimes say to me, because I've been out of politics almost 18 months, do you miss it? Nope. Do you regret going? Nope. Um, I I dropped Julie, my wife, at a train station this morning and saw the NOW member for Blacktown standing there handing stuff out and as I drove away I thought, oh, don't miss any of that at all.
0: <laughs> That's a nice place to be.
1: <laughs> it's great. But, yeah, I'm very thankful. And I think for me, I'm still... Uh, and I thought about this this morning before we did this. I think I'm still in a place where I'm recuperating a bit. Mm. Um, my pilot light's still on, but the fire's not burning as hard as it was. But I anticipate, you know, there'll be something that'll happen that'll really motivate me again to get up and go. Yeah. I mean, I'm doing I'm doing stuff now at Food Bank, um, which is great, and I feel like I'm making change and helping people who need help. But yeah, I sort of I wouldn't say I'm out there marching down the streets or banging a drum yet
0: yeah but there's no reason why that won't happen in a different way another time
1: i'm sure it will and it'll probably happen where i am now there's part of our goal is to build a movement for change around hunger and fighting hunger so i no doubt will apply my skills there to build a movement <laughs> to fight hunger in australia
0: cool we'll have to check back in on how that's going down the track <laughs> thank you so much robo
1: pleasure mean thank you <laughs>
0: Changemaker Chats are hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Our Changemaker Chats are produced by me. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We are also supported by the Halloran Trust, based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. And don't forget to register for one of our masterclasses if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking.